Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. We are very excited to be speaking with Dr. Rob Gordon today, someone who comes with numerous recommendations from various people. Uh, and we were particularly flooded with requests for a podcast about responding to natural disasters. And I guess that's not a surprise. We've definitely had our share of natural disasters lately. And even areas that are not affected have been watching the news and watching their fellow rural Australians being going through quite a difficult time this year and the years before. So um, one of the things we're going to do today, Rob, is, is think about responding to natural disasters. But of course, we are right in the middle of some natural disasters at the moment. People are still in flood-prone areas. There are still people who, are, who don't have stable housing. So people are, are probably still feeling a bit in the thick of it. But we are particularly going to focus on practice with people uh, when it comes to, I guess, mental health services or counselling services and that sort of thing. So let me start with a, 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 I would say maybe a simple question, but maybe not a simple question, which is what what do you think is the difference between, say, psychological distress or, or feeling upset and some kind of diagnosis or um, perhaps a PTSD diagnosis? Yes, this is a good question, Rebecca, because the most common reaction after disasters is what the researchers call distress. Distress is not a pathological condition. It's evidence that the person is uh, exhausted over it, is struggling with multiple problems, and, and they just feel terrible. And healthy people feel terrible uh, under the right circumstances. So... There are lots of times when this distress comes to the foreground. I notice one of the most obvious times is when people get too physically exhausted. So it's one of the important self-care strategies is to make sure you don't get too low, too tired, too sleepless, too hungry, uh, work too long, because once that happens, the distress factor comes in and everything starts to seem impossible. Now, that's quite different from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD really means the disorder that comes from the stress of having had a trauma. And a trauma, the word means wound, injury or damage in Greek. So we preserve the term trauma in medicine for externally caused injuries, having a car accident or, I don't know, cutting yourself with a, with a piece of machinery or something of that sort, breaking something. 
Um, that's quite different from having a heart attack or diabetes or something like that. That's an internal medical problem. So the trauma is about an event that impinges on me and damages me. So if we apply that to the psychological trauma, we mean an experience that is so intense that it damages my frame of reference, how I understand the world, which is really about my assumptions about life, the world, other people, the weather, so that now I can't make sense of things in the way I used to. And that means I set up what we call triggers. People talk about triggers. I was hearing it today as I was talking to people from flood-affected communities in Victoria, and they were saying, as soon as it starts raining now, everyone gets really distressed and upset because rain equals water equals flood, and and that brings the whole flood experience back as though it happened yesterday. What, what the trauma is is that we have this impact of an experience that keeps being reactivated in that very fresh, raw way. I'm not remembering, oh, yes, that reminds me of the terrible flood we had a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. It's, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? And that's really, that's where the disorder comes in, that if people have that reactivation frequently, they become hypersensitive and then they keep going back into that danger state and that disrupts and derails their ability to think, plan, manage things uh, and so on. That's different from the distress. Now, Mark might get distressed because the trauma is being reactivated, but psychological distress is just all the problems of the present moment. PTSD is problems of that terrible moment that keep reasserting themselves and might change sense of reality. And I think often people do feel like, I feel terrible, that must mean I need counselling or, or maybe that I need medication or, or some other kind of help. How, how do people understand when they should ask for help or who should they talk to about that kind of thing? The first thing we need to understand is that under normal circumstances, a relatively small proportion of the community actually get uh, some kind of mental health services, counselling or therapy or something of that sort. Let's say it's about 20%. When a disaster happens, like a flood, if it affects a whole area, a whole group or community of people, with the normal expectations around mental health issues, you can probably say, about 20% of those people maybe have been struggling for various reasons beforehand and may or may not have uh, actually got some proper help or depression or anxiety states or something of that sort. But the other 80%, it's not that they don't have distress and have crises and feel terrible, but somehow or another they're able to keep going. And so they don't think first up, of going to see a counsellor just because terrible things have happened. I've been used to dealing with this in the past. So when a disaster occurs, the people who've had it before, had counselling before, will say, ah, oh, you know, I'm feeling terrible again and I felt better when I saw my counsellor. I think I'll bring them up and go back. 
or if not, uh, oh, there's some councillors in town. Yeah, I know that can help, so I'll go. The other 80% don't see the relevant of it to begin with because they usually rely on their own resources. And I think what's really important is the system often says a terrible things happen to a community. We, we need to get a lot of mental health people in. They'll all be very upset. But if you go in too early, they're saying, we don't want to talk about this. We're too busy. We're too busy filling sandbags or tearing up our carpets and, and you know, trying to get the, the house livable. There'll be a small number of people who are very distressed by it and need it. But most people will probably go for some time, weeks, maybe months even, and then they'll start to say, um, this is really getting my, me down. I'm, I'm, uh, feeling depressed. Or uh, I just can't see how we're going to get through this. We've got problems with the insurance, problems with the builders, and I'm just feeling so anxious and I can't think clearly, I can't sleep. And that's when they really need to have the idea you can probably benefit from talking with someone with training. Don't just say you should get counselling, you should see mental health, but they don't necessarily know what you mean. What I say to them is if you're having a difficulty uh, with your mental state, your mind, so that you're having trouble getting through the day and getting stuff done, then it's a good idea to see someone who's got training to help you understand why and to give you some strategies about getting back in control. And often those 80 percenters just need a few pointers and they can get going. And so... What's often very useful is that the agencies, services that are going to be able to provide the counselling come in early but just get to know people and attend meetings, networking, linking up so that the local providers, the GPs, uh, people in the council or other agencies, get to know them. And then they'll be the ones that will say, hey, Rebecca, you know, you're crying again. Why don't you go and see this guy, Rob, who's uh, who's come down from the health department? He's had some experience before. And that'll make sense to you because the person is telling you is somebody you know knows you. And, you know, you trust them and, and you pass it on. I think what uh, often is less helpful is just setting up a service, say, rock up and up their sign and say here we are and um, quite often they don't get as much work as they expect so building those networks I think it's incredibly helpful for people to the the clinicians or, or mental health specialists to just go along to to meetings to to get the organizers of the meeting to give them you know five or ten minutes to give a few pointers on managing stress or helping yourself sleep or if you point us on how diet can help you when you're stressed, a few strategies on problem solving, and people will say, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's really practical and helpful. And then later on they'll say, what's the name of that bloke that spoke at the meeting? Can we uh, can we see him? Uh, and that sort of thing. So it's, that, it's building those linkages in the community that I think are the preconditions, because after all, those are the linkages that probably get the 20% to see people anyway because they're, I don't know, their GP or their, maybe their uh, clergy or, or somebody they know or teachers at the school will be making suggestions and that's how they get 
pass through. And that that's all bypassed in the disaster. It's all too sudden. Yeah, I mean, that what you're describing is probably a little bit different from what is has been happening in the past where people, as you say, might turn up, but also that people might be funded for, let's say, 12 months of counselling. And so, as you're describing it, people might not even really be ready to come to counselling for the first six months, and then you've got a very short amount of time in which you're in the community. Now, one of the things I've noticed in my 30-odd years of working with disasters, I noticed it in the first one in, in Ash Wednesday back in 1983, that uh, often there'll be a flurry of activity early on and there will be some very distressed people who need really need to see someone early on. Most other people are so busy trying to get their lives back in some order that they haven't got time to focus on themselves. They've got too many other practical issues. The time when their mental state starts to cause them trouble is when they get very tired. Like I said before, you know, emotions are physical events in our body. They produce secretions and chemicals. We cry or we have shot through with the various hormones and so on. And therefore, it takes physical energy to manage the physical energies of emotions. So when we get too tired, we can't manage them, and the, the, the emotions become intense, and that's when they swamp our judgment. Mm-hmm. We become pessimistic or frightened about the future, or, or we can't think clearly and even set about organizing ourselves. One of the first signs that a person is very stressed is a particular sort of memory problems. Not the memory problem where I forget that I've got an appointment with Rebecca to have a chat about disasters. No, what I remember is I'm supposed to talk to someone about disaster, but I can't remember who it is or where the email is, and I can't remember her name, so I don't know where to look it up, and now I'm in a panic, right? It's it's more of a, a matter about organisation. Right. And if I put put the email in the right little folder in my email program, I can say, oh, no, I'm doing that on this day. Oh, yeah, it's Rebecca. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I remember mm-hmm. her. And it all yep. comes back. Yep. If I'm too stressed, I'm not, if you like, not filing things away. It's a bit like when I get very stressed and if I moved the camera, I'd be able to show you I've got piles of paper and stuff all around my, which I haven't had time to file away. So I know where everything is. It's all on my desk in a pile, but I can't find anything. And that's what our minds become like. And everybody's got the experience when you're having a really hard time of realising you need something and you go up to the bedroom to get it. And when you get there, you can't remember what you went there for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why? Because you've thought of 16 other problems on the way up. By the time you get there, you can't remember which one you're dealing with. And then you come back to your computer to try and remember. You realize, oh, I can't read the computer. I need my glasses. And then you go up to your bedroom again and you can't find your glasses. And then as you're walking back, you glance in the mirror and you see that you've got them up on top of your head or something. <laughs> yep. You know, it's that sort of thing that makes us progressively more and more disorganized. And mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a sure sign that people are getting tired. Now, in terms of the time frame, those problems start to kick in 
when we start to exhaust our store of reserves. And I notice there's a period of around about six months when you get a big upsurge in the need for support in disaster-affected communities. Let's say it's probably between about four and eight months, so because some people get tired quicker if they're very well and robust and they've been having a nice life before, they've got more reserves than if they already had half a dozen problems and they were worried about money anyway. You know, as there's this period some months after the now. What's being said, of course, by people in the current situation is that we've had droughts, bushfires, COVID, and now floods. So this, uh, people are all already pretty stressed for all sorts of reasons. So I'm not sure the six months is going to be a good guideline. But what we can say is people will use the energies they've got. And that's the time uh, when that comes to the end, when they start to have this factor of distress that you've brought up earlier in the beginning. And so one of the messages I try to give is, Try to avoid getting into crisis mode. You get in crisis when your distress is so high, you can't deal with anything anymore. You burst into tears or or you get angry and yell at people and insult them who you shouldn't or you drink too much or drive too fast or have accidents with a chainsaw. These are a whole range of things that are very predictable in disasters, uh, disaster environments. And I think it becomes very important to... Soon as you sort of can settle, you know, in the first couple of months, get into accommodation if you can't be in your house, solve those immediate problems. Now stop, slow down and re-establish a rhythm of life that holds on to downtime, the relaxation, the enjoyment of your family, contact with friends. It's a false economy to say, it's too much to do. We can't afford to take any time off. We've just got to keep working. We've got to get all this done because you'll never get it done in time before you absolutely exhaust yourself and go into a psychological crisis. And so in that first six months, I think slowing down as soon as you can and then anticipating that low state and thinking when that comes, that's a, I've got to read that signal and say, okay, I've got to take some time out, recharge, maybe leave the area, stay with friends somewhere else, have a bit of normality and then make a plan about how you're going to do it and, and come back to it. So now there will be another crisis around about the anniversary. Yes, right. For two reasons. One is the anniversary makes me stop and think about all that I've lost and how my life's been disrupted. But for another reason, and that is the same seasonal uh, situation will be triggers. And that's when... People will find all the triggers they didn't realise they had uh, when the same season comes around. About every six months you can say there tends to be a crisis. Well, that's for the old sort of disaster, whereas now but we should say every few Constant months. Constant crisis, yeah. It, it also strikes me that maybe at the anniversary, I, I know you've spoken about this before, people might have expectations of where they should be by a year on or how they should be feeling. Do you want to expand a little bit more about that? Yes, that's a very important point. The first thing is that people rapidly discover in disasters that people outside the area don't really get it after a short time. There's mm-hmm. a lot of understanding and sympathy 
when it's on the headlines and where there's obvious damage. Mm. Uh, but this is where floods are very different to fires. Mm-hmm. Fires leave a big blackened pile of rubbish. Mm. It takes quite a long time to clean that up. And then the whole landscape is cleared with with fire for a few years. Mm-hmm. Slowly people start rebuilding. But after a flood, even a few weeks later, when the grass has grown over the silt, mm. it can be quite hard to believe that a disaster happened mm. in this little town with lots of beautiful green lawns and so on. Mm. But if you go into the houses, they stink and they've got mildew and the doors don't close properly and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And um, even if there are people in the houses, they might not be. And and so it, it we need to understand that the disaster disrupts the sort of things we absolutely take for granted about our physical world. And people who haven't been through that find it very hard to visualize how long people's lives are disrupted. Mm-hmm. This really means that sometimes people experience that the people they look to for support and care and understanding in their normal lives might be, I don't know, people down in Melbourne or Sydney or somewhere in another town, uh, start to sort of think they should be moving on. And mm-hmm. they'll say things like, you know, you should put, put that behind you and uh, move on. I'm sure if you stop talking about it, uh, it wouldn't be so upsetting mm-hmm. because they talk and they get upset. and they. But, of course, they talk about it because it's all there in the front of their mind. They mm-hmm. need to talk about it. And I try to say, if I get the chance to people outside the area, please understand, talking is the way you kind of get hold of something, the way you distance yourself, the way you convert these huge emotional experiences into a narrative, into a story of my life that I can feel a little bit more independent of. And telling my story helps me separate myself from my emotions, right, because I've got to explain them. So even though they seem to be going over and over the same ground, uh, if you listen carefully, you find it's not exactly the same. There are things they said last time that they're no longer saying because they've been able to move on. And there are some things they're saying that you haven't heard before. But in the middle, there's a whole lot that's the same. It's that, that shift on the edge that shows the progress. And it's just so important to have people to listen. You know, I think that uh, the, the, the boundary around the affected community often becomes quite stark. And if you've got a couple of tactless comments, you just don't talk to people who you know haven't been there. That throws the community in on themselves. And so one thing is that the community becomes its own greatest resource. And so I think creating opportunities where people can just come together and socialize, uh, I think many people can work their traumas through just by chatting and talking over, over a few sausages every, you know, maybe once a week or once a month. I think a wonderful thing is to put on community meals where, you know, in a local hall where people often volunteer their food and their cooking and so on. 
and the community just comes along and and uh, gets looked after and chats and talks. And I think a lot of people work their stuff through, and they there's wonderful sort of connections of passing on information and learning about how to deal with problems. And someone who's managed to you know get onto Centrelink will be able to explain to somebody else who feels it's all too hard or to deal with Telstra or something and find out about what grants are available and where you get them and all these this is like becomes community knowledge so that that really means uh supporting the community and looking after the community in terms of its whole area and there's a tendency to think that the people who are most affected are the ones who who had the physical impact of water through their house not necessarily as clear as that. Of course, that is one way of affecting But somebody else might have lost their job. They didn't get water, but they've lost their job and they've got a major financial problem. Another one who uh, maybe thought they were going to drown because they were driving from one place to another and uh, they had no physical effects on their property, but they had a terrible experience. I was hearing the other day of... Uh, somebody who was uh, had to be retrieved on their house, which was completely isolated, in the middle of the night in a boat that they had to cut through all the fences to to get them out, and it was dark and cold and so on. That, that's a very different sort of experience to having, you know, a couple of feet of water through your house and a lot of damage. Uh, you know, if you evacuated beforehand, you never felt un, under danger. So I think it's most important that. Um, people don't jump to conclusions, don't rush to judgment about who's entitled to be affected. Everybody in the community will be affected in some way or another. And so if they really work together, they'll be a very strong unit of, uh, of recovery. It strikes me that, um, I know you've said this before, that there's a sense of the person's identity sometimes being a bit simplified down or a bit focused in on uh, being a survivor of the disaster. That's who I am. That's how I define myself now. And I, I know that you've said before about getting back to being a complicated whole person is part of the recovery story. So I'm interested how those two things sit together. Obviously, people are talking a lot about maybe something that's happened to them. Maybe they are repeating uh, stories over and over again and things like that. And I can imagine some people on the outside are thinking, oh, aren't you over this yet? Why do you keep repeating the same thing? But then there is also this possibility of getting stuck in that day, on that worst day of your life. If you think of the psychology of identity, identity is the idea I have of myself. And a resilient person is a person with a complex identity. Uh, see, if I'm a, I don't know, if I'm a psychologist and let's say I'm an amateur, uh, I don't know, footballer or something or another, and I'm also a fisherman and a father and whatever else, if I have a bad day at work and the people I'm counselling don't like what I'm saying, get up and go out and slam the door and say, I'm never coming back. And I come home thinking, gee, I don't think I'm a very successful psychologist. But then I go 
Billy a bit down to the footy and I'd play football and kick 10 goals, I think, oh, well, actually, I'm, a, I'm all right at footy. Yeah. Maybe I should become a professional, <laughs> you know, or I go out fishing and uh, have a quiet Saturday afternoon and cook a couple of fish and come back and cook a nice dinner for my family and whatever. Can you see that, that where, where you're in trouble is if um, he, he, my client slams the door and walks out and I don't manage to kick any goals and we lose and I go out and I don't catch any fish. And you, so you find that if things go wrong in several areas of our lives at the same time, they can just be trivial things. We suddenly feel terrible. Hmm. And so... In the normal circumstance, we say a resilience factor that strengthens me and helps me to withstand uh, problems and adversities is to have areas of my life that I can take refuge in or take comfort from when other areas are going wrong. And that means having a complicated idea. Now, when the disaster happens, it's so huge and it's also so threatening that our instinctive brain chemistry takes over and we go into the state of heightened arousal, which means activation, mm. activation of survival mechanisms, which are basically attuned to physical survival. Mm. All these instincts were built up in ancient times when the problems were physical. Well, they're physical in a disaster to begin with, mm. but... After a while, they become financial and social and other other forms. But in that physical uh, survival state, we actually focus in on what is the problem, what do I have to do? There's an immense survival advantage to that because I can pull all of my resources in filling sandbags and uh, do it from hours and hours and hours, you know, to do whatever has to be done. And then I've got to look at, what happens and who do I have to talk to and all the things I have to do. So that a part of that is to condense all of my focus into my disaster-related experiences. And if I'm not careful, nothing else seems to be important. You don't put any energy into the other areas. It all goes into the disaster recovery. And as time passes you're in a more and more vulnerable state because if your recovery is progressing, and let's face it, it does take a few years for most people who have significant impacts to recover. As you go through that and you have various things go wrong or don't happen on time or whatever, then if you've just got that focus on the disaster recovery, you you, you get very overwhelmed and despairing. That's when the distress factor comes to the fore. Can't see how I'm going to get through it. Whereas if you've preserved, say, your social relationships and you've regularly taken time out and gone elsewhere and visited other friends or you've kept your hobbies going, you haven't put all your energy into disaster recovery, but you, you've kept going down to the footy on Saturday afternoon and you know you've got people there that you can talk to, these things actually protect you from feeling the whole world's gone. It's just one part. It's a big part, an important part, but I've got other parts working. And so this idea of resilience has been having lots of connections. The more connections we have, the more parts of my life I can protect and give, get good experiences from, the more resilient I am. 
I would imagine if somebody was coming out of disasters, they might feel like going to the footy or going away on a holiday seems frivolous or it, it seems like a, um, a waste at this period of time. It looks like it hasn't affected me or I'm being, I don't know, I should be here supporting the rest of my community or, you know, there's a lot of duty and obligation as well as um, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But I think that's a really interesting point that, in fact, those things are protecting your resources, are, are keeping you well so that you are able to manage what's coming down the pipeline. And into that picture that you described so well, we need to throw survivor guilt. Yeah. The unaffected committee members who mm. feel really bad about what's happened to their friends and neighbours and uh, and feel they must help out. Now, I could tell a few stories about people who totally devoted themselves to the recovery program because they were not damaged, they didn't lose anything, but for whom the total focus on that, to the exclusion of uh, their families and the rest of their life, caused really significant problems for them a couple of years down the track. And those are disaster impacts too, but they are preventable ones. They just took a, a little bit slower and they took a bit of time off and took Sunday afternoons off and just didn't totally lose the structure of their own life. So when, when we talk about that point about becoming very narrowed, I think, uh, a question I often put is to say that people should think down the track, you know, a few months down the track when things start to stabilise and they've got a long, hard road ahead of them, they should start to think, now, what were the activities and aspects of my life that made my life valuable, meaningful, uh, and rewarding on a regular basis and am I still doing them and if I'm not what have I replaced it with and so what, what you've probably replaced it with is running up and down to the bedroom trying to remember why you went there you know, probably a lot, of it, a lot of it is the inefficiency which is wasteful of energy and resources and you're, you're trying to get things to happen faster than they can. Nobody's got realistic expectations for how things will happen after a disaster because they're based on, I don't know, building a house that you choose to build at a certain time when your builder's got time to do it and the resources are available because not everyone's building a house at the time, you know, and those sort of things. And if people don't sort of understand that, they get so frustrated. If only we could get some action. Um, sometimes things legislation has to be put through Parliament to get get things organised. That's got to go through a whole process, which people don't know about. And so this factor of distress that we began with it comes in, you know, because I'm frustrated and angry. Well, actually, I'm only distressed because I've got unrealistic expectations. I shift my expectations. So, okay, I don't like it. It's going to take some months, or you know, it's going to. Uh, it's nothing I can do about the plans. I've got to wait till that process. It's going to take a few weeks or a few months. 
what will I do in the meantime? I might as well go fishing. You know, just get back to those things that really make life worthwhile. You can't afford to put life on hold for very long before it starts to deteriorate and you forget the things you used to do. It it sort of strikes me, Rob, that you're talking a lot about, I guess, like pacing yourself, that this is going to be a bit of a marathon recovery. I guess it triggered in my mind the idea of the people who are working in the mental health service or being the counsellors or or being the community member that everybody goes to, maybe it's the First Nations auntie that everybody goes to, but those people who are the helpers, it must be enormous pressure on them to, as you say, be resilient and and all that sort of stuff. But it it would be a, a danger, I would imagine, that you would become quite focused on being helpful to to others rather than pacing yourself and looking after yourself. Yes. So there's a couple of things here. One is often the issues of disasters are a little bit different or quite different to, let's say, normal work in mental health. Now, when people, you know, a lot of people take on challenging and demanding work and they love it, but what keeps them going is a certain feedback loop which says, this is a really big problem. I've trained to deal with it. I know I can't make everything work out all right. I can't always achieve my, but I also know that I do make a difference and that's what I'm here for. I'm not here to fix the problems. I'm here to make a difference and do what I can. Uh, an ambulance officer, for instance, would probably know they're unfortunately not going to be able to save every life of a person, let's say, at a car accident. But they've got a framework in which they can assess why they couldn't do it on this occasion. And so in every profession, people have got sort of an inbuilt framework that helps them evaluate how they're going. And if we work within that framework, people with experience and training can usually work very well for a long time. They need, of course, you know, to consult with other people and talk about their work and learn. But when you're in a disaster, often you've got these uh, very raw situations that aren't coming through the kind of network of uh, of other services. You're seeing people really raw and fresh. They often have multiple problems. And you're often seeing them in a much less formal environment. You might be visiting in their homes, for instance, and you can see all the damage around them. Or you might be in a, I don't know, in a room in a hall or somewhere uh, without your usual colleagues around the place so that when you finish seeing a morning full of people and you stagger out to the kitchen to, to make a coffee, there's no one there or no one there that you know. Uh, whereas if you're in your normal clinic, you'd, so, geez, I've had quite a morning and you'd have a bit of a chat about it with it, and, you know, and offload a bit. Uh, so, so I think isolation is important. Another factor that is really important is that often the people that go out and do it are not always experienced. Sometimes agencies feel as though we can send out some of the younger workers because they're not quite so heavily committed or something like that. And 
it's just so much we have to improvise when we work in disasters because it's outside our normal routine. Now, I think the people who are best equipped to improvise are the people who are well-established and clear about their normal roles and and feel comfortable doing the normal work. I think it's very important to set up... First of all, I think it's important to send out people who've who've got a well-established place in their home agency. Secondly, I think it's important to uh, brief them before they go, which was really involves showing them how this will be different from their normal work and giving them the confidence about where and how they might go outside their normal role, where they might be more flexible and more responsive and less formal. Because that's a very stressful thing to think, you know, I wonder if I should just sit with this person and have a cup of tea or whether I should have a f- proper formal counselling session. I don't know what I should do. Well, in disaster work, I think informality is really important, especially that, that those 80% of people who don't normally use help. But the other thing I think is it's so important for these people to have uh, opportunities to talk about their work with hopefully other experienced people or, or experienced professionals to help them think about what they're learning, what they're seeing. And uh, it's often the case that if people are going out from a hospital or a health service or some other agency to work in a disaster environment and then they come back, they'll probably encounter the same sort of problems that the community members encounter when they talk to their friends outside the area that the people back at the home base will be saying, they won't say it like this, but well, they'll be thinking, well, it's all very well for you to be out there gallivanting around, and but we're really struggling here picking up uh, the gap that you've left. When, in fact, the person coming back saying, I'm just so full of this experience, I want to be able to talk about it, and everyone's too busy, you know. So I think it's really important that if people are going to go out, there's a thought to that sort of, what should we call it, the infrastructure that will support them and to be able to, I think, tell their colleagues back in the home agency what they're doing, tell some stories, show them what they're doing, help them share the problems. And and then I think uh, really to make sure they have properly constructed opportunities to meet and talk about their work in a, with a supervisor or some kind of consultant who will help them think about it and evaluate their work. It strikes me that the approach that we have to to disaster work, I mean, obviously there are uh, some things that we would do in a city environment or in an urban environment that might be quite different in, in a rural or a small town, or even a remote community. Yeah. Can you expand on what might be some of the differences between kind of urban practice and when you were telling that story about somebody going out maybe from their service and then coming back to probably wherever they live being a big city? Um, what do you think are, are some of the differences between those two places of practice? People who work in rural and, and small communities, uh, often if they live and work there, they have multiple roles. And, you know, the school principal may be in the CFA uh, or the fire, fire, fire service 
or on a committee of something or another and uh, and they'll often see people in the supermarket that uh, you know might be a parent of the school or another committee member and so on so that there's a lot more sort of mixing of these various areas and when you translate that to somebody who's a service provider they know everybody they know what's going on and um, they can actually put a word here and there and make things happen which has to be more formalized in the city and so people who have come from the city environment uh, will actually often feel well this is really breaching a few boundaries we should preserve confidentiality and so i think often in disasters uh, that needs to be managed sensitively but flexibly and and you need to sort of feel your way into where you can maybe say something about somebody's problems and when when it is not ethical to do so 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 those are some of the areas and people often feel a bit exposed when they go there because they feel a bit as oh, I can't get away from the work wherever I go if I go to the supermarket or I go and have dinner in the pub or whatever uh, the people I've been talking to are all around me and uh, I think that's where it's important for people to be able to be clear I'm in work mode or I'm not in work mode and uh, uh, you know rural workers often become quite skilled at deflecting stuff and saying I'll I'll deal with that on Monday but uh, how's the footy going yep that sort of thing so yeah that that can be quite stressful for people who are not experienced in that way and the other thought that crossed my mind as you were talking before Rob about um disaster preparedness you know there there is an interest I suppose that can we build resilience in communities Assuming that we may, we're predicting another wet summer or, you know, if we're having a prediction of fires to come, are there things that we could be doing that psychologically prepare people for uh, um, what may be an impending disaster? What do you think about this concept? Yeah, I think that's really important. A major resilience factor is the feeling that I've learned from the experience because then it's been of value to me. And uh, that learning means I carry it forward, I apply what, what I've learned. One hazard, though, is that if you've just been through floods, that's where your focus is, whereas the next problem you may have to deal with might be fire. And so I think it's important to think outside your own circumstances to where people say, we're always best prepared for the last disaster, and, but it'll never happen the same. Even the next flood will not be the same as the current flood. Floods can happen in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, I think the ability to stop and think about what we've learned, what we would do next time, what we would do if it's a flood, what we'd do with a fire, really empowers us. And it's quite hard to do because you want to put it behind you and get back to normal. But it's a resilience factor to be saying to yourself, I accept the world is not as safe as it was 20 years ago. You know, I think to be accepting that, whereas our habit is to work on as in the past, so in the future. So therefore, disaster preparedness is, is a, a very empowering thing. But the most important thing to prepare is our minds and brains. 
because uh, there I could tell many stories of people who had all the right fire equipment or whatever, and uh, in when it happened, they did silly things and they didn't get to it in time, and or they hadn't thought out how the fire would possibly move or whatever, and they uh, basically didn't have them. They as well not have made any preparations for their fire equipment because they didn't get to use it. So people who make um, bad decisions and uh, afterwards say, why didn't I do this, that or the other? So I think to, to be aware, building into your uh, emergency plans that you keep bringing your own mental state down out of this really high-pitched adrenaline state where you'll only be able to uh, carry out very rigid pre-programmed actions that are totally familiar. But to keep bringing yourself down, broadening out your perspective, what's going on here, what are the most important things. And with, uh, if you've got a family that people can talk each other down and prompt each other by saying, hey, uh, you're looking a bit stressed, just take a, take a breather. And preserve your greatest resource, which is your, your mind and your brain and your thinking. There are various uh, resources you can look at on the Red Cross website about disaster preparedness that will help uh, give strategies for that sort of thing. What would you say are some of the effects on your relationships in the ways that uh, families relate to each other from being in a disaster, of course, in that, that kind of critical phase, but, but afterwards when the danger is passed? I just think it's so important for people to share their experience with each other because, as I like to say, the, the trauma is not what happens, it's what I think is going to happen. You know, sometimes the worst does happen. You People get burnt or nearly drowned or something like that. But you can be very traumatised because you think that's going to happen, but it doesn't. And if you think it is going to happen, you're not just thinking it up here, you're thinking it right down in here and you get into the state of mind to anticipate it. And that's where the traumatic reorganization of the brain happens. The best way around that is for people to tell the whole story. And one very useful thing anyone can do is when they listen to somebody telling a story, if you listen carefully, you find that very often they will pause at the moment of greatest danger. And if you just wait then they'll often not go on with how they escape. They'll go on with, I don't know, some kind of emotion. They'll be angry with the parks and wildlife people who didn't do enough burning off, or they'll be angry with the council they didn't bulldoze the creek beds and allow the water to escape or something or another. Often it's not very realistic, but that's where, like, the danger produces this bundle of emotion. That bundle of emotion then takes... And what they ignore completely is how they survived, decisions they made, the help they got. And it's like there's a one little part of the story that is all the danger bit. Then somewhere else, there's another bit of the story, my way off down here in the corner, of how they survived. Now, every time you go into the danger, you go back and relive it without any outcome. And so one of the useful things people can say for each other is, when they get to that moment and they, instead of going on, they just preserve their common sense and say, well, they thought they were going to die or get engulfed or something, but they didn't. I wonder why not. 
And that's all you need to ask them. What happened next? How come you got through? Oh, you made a decision. Good one. Nice job. Uh, you know, and it's sort of gathering all those bits up and putting them together. Now, when you get people in a marriage or in a family situation or partners, they often, even if they've been through something together, they don't sit down and talk about what they all went through and what they were thinking because they all went through it. And they, they make the mistake of thinking, well, we all know what happened. We're all there. Let's get on with it. It's not like that. I think it's really important, especially for children, to go from what was happening and what did you think might happen at this time and this is why it didn't happen and this is what we would have done if it did, you know, and tell this story. And then I think we know that one of the greatest recovery resources is relationships, preserving relationships. And so putting time into preserving the time or the opportunity to communicate. Something I've learned is a very simple principle that without privacy, you lose intimacy because intimacy is private communication. And so it becomes really important to think about how to protect that if, let's say, people are billeted with other families or living in caravans or whatever, to create this opportunity for conversation that parents can have a conversation about their worries without necessarily the kids having to hear it all and uh, vice versa so just protecting that and and i think being aware of this uh, ongoing stress process that happens to people where they get into this dogged narrow focus of plotting one problem after another and too tired to sort of talk, eat, drop into bed, get up the next morning, do the same. And so all of the unnecessary communication, the communication that carries emotions and attitudes and feelings, gets sort of dropped away. And that's you know, this identity of living, just living the disaster, instead of hanging on to the other connections, becomes important. And and you know, I think that that uh, that's where it becomes really important for people to think about holding the structure of their of the normal life and what what gave them value before that will get them out of this narrow dogged focus and allow them to get things into perspective to work out what the real priorities are to look after their lives because i i've invented a name for what happens to people it's not a mental illness but in this state, anybody will get to a point where they suffer what I call degraded quality of life. The quality goes and uh, they just doggedly go on and on. And then um, maybe the couple realize that they haven't really talked to each other for six months or the kids drift out of the family into their peer groups because uh, there's no one ever really available to talk at home. They're all too busy and worried and stressed. And this is a very preventable thing by making that decision to preserve the quality of life and preserve what gives joy and meaning. Uh, and that uh, stops what people sometimes call the second disaster, which is during these couple of years, a lot of things have changed and I once had a woman tell me after they went through, through a fire that uh, and they lived for 18 months with uh, the neighbours 
and of course a lot of things we don't talk about or do or express when uh, we're living with the neighbours. Seemed like a good idea at the time, but she says now seven years later, looking back, she says, my husband and I are still together, but we're just good friends. Now, she's actually lost a husband and got a friend, better than losing it completely, but it's a really big loss, isn't it? And uh, she could also talk about the loss to the closeness of the kids. So people go through the motions, but they've lost the, the warmth and the closeness, and that's what makes life rewarding. So that's what really needs to be protected during this latter stage of recovery. So if I could ask you this last question, because we've talked a lot about trying to get back to what it was like before the disaster in some ways and recover in some ways, but there is this concept of post-traumatic growth and that, that life will be different but, but um, may even in some ways be better. That seems like a strange concept. Did you want to talk a bit about that before we finish off today? Yes, it's a very important idea and... You see, the reality is for many people, I won't say everybody, but for many people, life won't be the same afterwards. There are some people who financial circumstances will never quite be as good before, uh, sorry, after as they were before because the insurance wasn't enough or all sorts of other problems. But that doesn't mean they can have not have a good life. It'll be a different life. And one of the hard things, I think, is for people to open up once they, again, once they settle things down, try and open up and say, well, what were our life plans and goals? They mightn't have been written down on a piece of paper. What do we have in mind that we were trying to achieve? And is that still realistic financially and other ways? Because those, that life plan will be an expression of really fundamental values of who I am and what's important in life. Now, if you take those values and say, well, we don't have the same financial resources or lost a lot of stuff, so how can we take those values and express them in my current circumstances? And that's a creative process, but it really only takes off when you've let go of the old plan. As long as you're trying to get back to the old plan, it may not be working. And post-traumatic growth is, you know, learning from experience, working out how you change things, what you can't take for granted anymore, which allows you to appreciate each day you've got and you realise you lost all your possessions but you have your loved ones and that's really what's important or you've kept a few key photographs that link to the past. And, you know, they're precious. So, you know, I think that post-traumatic growth is very strongly connected with self-care because to grow we have to have, we have to be nourished and nurtured. And so it's getting out of this really tunnel vision, focus on all the problems and stopping and talking and thinking and noticing how wonderful the support in the communities is. Mm. Uh, there can be problems as well, but very often there are wonderful, generous gifts of time and, and uh, help. And to realise 
it's like the cover stripped off human nature. You see this huge generosity and, and, and giving. And, and I think these are really important experiences. And so post-traumatic growth is something we can look forward to that really comes when we say, where to from here? What have I learned? How will I express that? If my values have changed, what does that mean about how I run my life? Um, I once spoke to a woman who was in a fire truck, firefighter who was in a fire truck that was burnt over, and she thought she was going to die. And she said, I've suddenly realized what's important in life, not getting a second car and a speedboat and a, a beach house. It's just being with the people I love. That's the only thing important. She said, but my husband wasn't there. He didn't have that experience. And he's still very strongly motivated to work two jobs and have all these material things. I don't want to do that. I just want to value things as they really are. And I said, well, uh, it's going to be an important conversation for you to have with him, isn't it? He said, yeah, I'm not sure how to have it. And I hope they had it. I never got a chance to follow it up. But you can see she'd have this massive growth from uh, external features to real intrinsic human qualities. That's going to make her very much more resilient. You can be very clear. Resilient people have a moral compass, a sort of a, they always know which is the right way to go in their lives. And they often get that through the hard way, through hard experiences. Now, I reckon people will do that again when they talk to each other. Some person will have an insight, they'll say, well, I've been thinking this here, and they'll think, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. And so you, you get this sort of collective awareness of the whole experience builds as people ex explain their circumstances. And again, the, the people that are most important are the people that went through it with them. And I think we should really uh, understand that that's a very strong uh, gift of disaster experiences. And But probably we only start to benefit from that when we've worked through the trauma and the grief that, that are so strong in the early days. Well, I think we might be out of time. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us. I, I hope all our listeners have found that conversation as interesting and as uh, helpful as I found that conversation. As always, we will put this on our website and we will have a list of selected resources underneath. I'm sure I will ask Rob if he can recommend some and we, we already have some in our resource library. Just remembering that we are the Peregrine Portal and uh, if you're looking for us, you can just go to our website, www.theperegrinecenter.com.au. Thanks for listening. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.